0: Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast. An in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 79, The Battle of Messines Ridge. Hello everyone, and welcome back. Last time, we welcomed the arrival of the first US troops to France in June of 1917. Although it would take some time before American troops were combat ready, the Allies did not have the luxury to sit back and bide their time. Looking at things from 30,000 feet, the strategic situation had altered considerably. The French army's collapse after the naval offensive had temporarily deprived the Allies of their senior partner. Meanwhile, the new provisional government over in Russia tried to establish itself on an unbalanced perch. This combination of factors dictated that the British would be burdened with leading the Allied offensive for the remainder of the year. The offensive in question was the brainchild of the British commander-in-chief, Douglas Haig. You'll recall that Haig had long sought for a campaign in the Flanders region of Belgium. In fact, he had already twice pitched the idea, once before the Somme, and again just prior to the Nivelle Offensive. But with the French temporarily out of commission, Haig now had the flexibility to pursue his goal. Haig saw his operation taking place over two stages, the creatively titled Southern Operation and Northern Operation. Scheduled for June 7th, the Southern Operation would see British forces attack the Messines Whitechateau Ridge, a spine of high ground just south of the Ypres salient. Capturing this important ridge would secure the southern flank for the larger, Northern Operation while providing the British with valuable high ground to observe the German line. The northern operation, then, was designed to capture two objectives, the Passchendaele Staden Ridge and the Garavelt Plateau east of Ypres. Once taken, British forces would then push onto the vital communications hub at Roules. Haig argued that a modest advance of 12 miles could destabilize German logistics in Flanders, and maybe, just maybe, force the Germans to withdraw. Haig's two-stage plan was certainly ambitious, but attacking in Flanders did offer unique prizes. Not only would it be an emotional win for the British, but it would also assist the Royal Navy in their ongoing struggle against the U-boats. If the Flanders plan was successful, it could deprive the Germans the use of their submarine bases along the coast, primarily those at Ashtend and Zeebrugge. It is worth noting, That U-Boat action resulted in the loss of 2,173,375 tons of Allied shipping since April. In the approaching summer meant U-Boat captains would have longer days and milder weather to operate. The Minister of Shipping reported that spring that unless something was done to ameliorate the U-Boat problem, Britain would face serious food shortages by the autumn. But before Haig was given the green light, he had to secure political support in London. After briefing his army commanders on May 7th, Haig received word that Lloyd George would not approve the plan unless the French agreed to support it as well. Now at the time, neither Haig nor Lloyd George knew the extent of France's morale issues. Pétain would not be promoted until May the 15th, one week after Haig's initial briefing. By the end of May, however, British intelligence was able to piece together an accurate assessment of what was happening in the French ranks in the sobering reality, rattled both Haig and Lloyd George. The revelation cast the Flanders operation in a new light. For better or for worse, Lloyd George acquiesced on June 3rd. And this was not done to appease Haig, mind you, but because Lloyd George felt it paramount to defend the beleaguered French. Not wanting to give Haig too long of a leash, the Prime Minister only approved the first phase of the Flanders offensive. the strictly limited assaults on the messines white Ridge. So now that we've set the context of the Battle of Messines Ridge, let's turn to the operation itself. The burden of attacking the messines Whiteshotter Ridge fell to the British Second Army, which had been positioned in the Ypres salient since 1915. Second Army was commanded by one of Haig's most competent generals, Sir Hubert Plumer. Born into an upper-middle-class London family, Herbert Plumer had an established reputation as a soldier's general. A portly man who sported a drooping white mustache, Plumer was well respected for the care and thoroughness he put into offensive planning. Affectionately known as the Old Plum, Plumer spent most of his war in the Ypres salient, first as the commanding officer of V Corps before taking command of 2nd Army in May of 1915. It was widely said that Plumer knew every puddle in the salient. Along with his capable Chief of Staff, General C.H. Harrington, Plumer cultivated a command style built on three unwavering principles. Trust, training, and thoroughness. Under Plumer's supervision, Second Army had spent the past 12 months meticulously preparing for battle. The assault on Messines was to be a bite-and-hold operation, with attacking infantry advancing under a significant artillery barrage. The attack front was smaller than Arras, with only half the infantry taking part. But it is worth noting that at Arras, the British had deployed one gun every 21 meters, whereas at Messines, it would be one gun every 7 meters. In all, 80,000 men across 9 divisions were earmarked for the attack. Second Army's shopping list also included 2,266 artillery pieces, 700 machine guns, 428 mortars, and 72 brand new Mark IV tanks. Water pipes brought in 600,000 gallons of fresh water, and light rails stockpiled 144,000 tons of shell and other munitions. Men rehearsed the battle on scale models and were briefed down to the finer details. Clearly, the lessons of the Somme and Arras had not been forgotten. Atop Messines Ridge, the Germans could observe the grind and roar of the enemy war machine. Senior Command had long anticipated an attack in Flanders, and had gone to considerable length to reinforce their defenses. No fewer than four defensive positions had been constructed, containing concrete pillboxes, blockhouses, and reinforced machine gun nests. But what the Germans could not account for was what was happening directly below them. 25 meters beneath the German positions, British, Canadian, and Australian tunneling companies were hard at work completing a five-month project. The tunnelers had dug an elaborate web of 24 underground tunnels. The longest tunnel extended 400 meters from the British line, honeycombing the ridge like the tentacles of some undersea leviathan. Each shaft was punctuated by a large chamber. In these chambers, Engineers placed enormous underground mines. Each mine contained an average of 21,772 kilograms, or 48,000 pounds, of aminol, blastine, and gun cotton. In total, the 21 mines equaled 450,000 kilograms of explosives. The plan was to blow these mines just before dawn on June 7th, heralding the start of the infantry attack. Plumer's men were quite proud of the technological terror they constructed. The mines were regularly inspected to ensure the charges, plungers, and wires were properly maintained. In all, the mining operation at Messines is testament to 2nd Army's ingenuity and thoroughness. Even when no attack was scheduled, 2nd Army continued to work just in case there was one. Perhaps nothing illustrates this fact better than the words of Plumer's Chief of Staff, C.H. Harrington. On the eve before the battle, Harrington remarked to a group of reporters, quote, "I do not know whether we shall change history tomorrow, but we shall certainly alter the geography." End quote. And alter the geography they most certainly did. British guns began bombarding Messines Ridge on May the twenty-sixth. For eleven days, over three million shells were pumped into the German positions. The bombardment was one of the most sophisticated to date, with timed lifts and specific targeting of delicate areas in the German defences. Most of the German batteries were destroyed, as were dugouts and communication trenches. A German machine gunner described the bombardment as follows, This is far worse than at Arras. Our artillery is left sitting and is scarcely able to fire around. The sole object of every arm that enters the battle is to play itself out in order to be withdrawn as quickly as possible." Quote. Then in the pre-dawn darkness of June 7th, the crash of gunfire suddenly gave way. The faint echo of the nightingales returned as an alien calm settled on the battlefield. Moments ticked by. At ten after three in the morning, the miners checked their watches one last time. As the clock struck zero hour, the order was given. The plungers were pushed. In a deep growl reverberated the earth. Although the British had some idea what to expect, nothing could have prepared them for what they were about to see. The earth before them cracked and roared. Large pillars of scarlet flame shot skyward, snaking their way along the crest of the ridge. 10,000 Germans were immediately vaporized, crushed, or swallowed up by the cowardice maws left in the mine's wake. Future British Prime Minister, Anthony Eden, then an officer in the 21st King's Royal Rifle Corps, remembered hearing the screams of imprisoned Germans as his unit set up positions in one such crater. We could do nothing for them, Eden wrote, for at all costs, we had to keep up our barrage. The destruction of Messines Ridge is etched into the popular memory of the Great War. The mines produced the largest non-nuclear explosion in history, and the aftershocks were felt as far away as London. But that's not where the story ends. You see, only 19 of the 21 mines were detonated that morning. The British decided to abandon three of the mines, while the Germans disarmed a fourth. Of the three mines left by the British, one exploded 38 years later in the 50s. They left a crater 20 meters deep and 40 meters wide. No one was injured, save for an unfortunate cow which was sadly killed. But where are the two remaining mines, you ask? Well, They're still under Messines Ridge today, primed and ready just as they were in 1917. No one is exactly sure where they are, but if you find yourself near the old battlefield, take the warning signs seriously. Anyway, back to the morning of June 7th. Soon after the mines were blown, the British artillery resumed the bombardment. Under this hellish cacophony, attacking infantry left our trenches and began the trek up the ridge. The order of battle was such, Ten Corps, consisting of the 23rd, 47th London and 41st Divisions, struck southeast against the northern shoulder of the ridge. Eleven Corps, including the 19th Western, 16th Irish, and 36th Ulster Divisions, attacked in the center near Whiteshot Village, while the 2nd Anzac and 25th New Zealand and 3rd Australian Divisions moved towards Messines Village on the southern edge. Second Army's meticulous preparation paid off. Although the New Zealanders faced steady resistance, most of the German defenders were either dead or succumbed to shock. As one British soldier recalled, They didn't seem to have any wits about them. We didn't even have to bother to take them prisoner. We just saw them coming at us through the smoke, running towards us like jellies. They didn't even know where they were. Overall, German resistance amounted to little more than a few isolated pillboxes and machine gun nests the attackers quickly seized the German front and support trenches with only minimal loss. Although the initial advance went well, it was not without its challenges. True to Harrington's words, the 19 explosions had significantly altered the battlefield. All points of reference were lost, which forced the infantry to rely on compass readings or to decipher their location from the smeared remains of once-familiar landmarks. The British also had a problem with soldiers bunching up. Since casualties were much lighter than anticipated, large numbers of troops began to mass on the ridge, and this offered tempting targets for German counterfire, which brought the advance to a temporary halt. Fortunately, the Germans did not undertake any serious counterattacks. Those reserve units that tried to make their way forward were quickly repelled by rifle and machine gun fire. By nightfall on June 7th, Messines Ridge was back under Allied control for the first time since 1914. Overall, the operation was a resounding success, perhaps one of the BEF's finest operations of the war thus far. This brings us to an important question. Why didn't the British try and exploit this advantage? To answer that question, we need to look at the different strategic visions of Haag and Plumer. Haig had indeed pushed Plumer to advance, but Plumer understood no further action was possible without pause. For any subsequent attacks to be successful, Plumer informed Hague on June 8th that he would require three days to redeploy his artillery. However, it appears that Hague was the one to lose his resolve. The Battle of Arras and now Ridge demonstrated the BEF was perfecting bite and hold operations, but the amount of time and necessary material was not generating the results Hague had wanted. Not wanting to wait for the three days, Hague turned the operation over to Hubert Gough of Fifth Army believing Goff would deliver decisive results faster than Plumer. Hubert Goff was a noted thruster, and the very antithesis of everything Plumer stood for. Elevating Goff over Plumer would prove to be one of Hag's most fateful decisions. But sadly, we will have to leave that story for the time being. So before we cap off this episode, we should give a brief account of the battle from the German perspective. For the Germans, The loss of Messines Ridge was far from catastrophic. From a purely strategic perspective, they still occupied the half-moon of high ground that circled Yeep. In other words, the Germans remained well situated to deflect any attack from within the salient. But as ready as they were, the Germans had committed a fatal error by discounting the possibility of large-scale mining against the Messines Ridge. The corps commander at Messines, General Maximilian von Laffert, Was so distraught he ordered an immediate evacuation, but was quickly overruled by his superiors. It would not be a stretch to argue that German command at Messines was temporarily broken on the morning of June 7th. While senior leaders tried to get a better sense of what was happening, the soldiers at the front faced a vision of hell unlike any of them had encountered before. To quote Nick Lloyd, the full horror of what happened to the German army on June 7th has often not been fully realized. There are only a few surviving accounts of those who witnessed the carnage, many of which were recorded well after the battle. One of the most quoted accounts reads like this, We saw 19 giant roses with bright red petals, or immense mushrooms, rise slowly and majestically out of the ground. They then broke apart with a dully roar. Immediately afterwards, bright colored pillars of flame and smoke shot skyward, carrying earth and debris up with them. End quote. Despite the horror that unfolded, the Germans had reason to be optimistic. Casualties were about even, with the Germans losing 25,000 men. The British had lost 24,562. While the attack demonstrated the British were becoming efficient at hold operations, these types of operations demanded a huge investment of men and material. The method was slow and methodical which of course favored the Germans who were happy to sit back and wait for the U-boats to complete their task. Ultimately, German command blamed the loss of Messines Ridge on five factors. The first, the British were superior in both manpower and resources, especially in artillery where they outnumbered the Germans 3 to 1. Second, the success of the underground mines. Third, the forward positions were flawed and underprepared. fourth the British were able to attack on multiple fronts, and finally, fifth, the counterattacks were poorly organized. Fortunately, at least one of these factors could not be repeated. Mining on such a scale would not be feasible again, while three of the remaining factors, namely the third, fourth, and fifth, could be addressed through better training and organization. For now, German command could not afford to be hung up by the loss of machines a bite-and-hold operation could only mean another attack in Flanders was soon on the horizon. Their predictions would come true on July 31st, when Hubert Goff's 5th Army roared to life, ushering the start of the much-anticipated Northern operation. Sadly, that story will have to wait, because next episode, we must depart the Western Front and head over to the east. The newly established provisional government in Russia was about to launch an offensive of their own and it would prove to be Russia's final act of the war. That's it for this week. As always, be sure to check out our website, thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can reach the show on Twitter, at Great Podcast or through email, thegreatwarpodcast@outlook.com. at outlook.com. That again, is at Great War Podcast on Twitter or The Great War Podcast at Outlook.com. This was episode 79 of The Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.